And if you have your Bible, why don't you turn with me to Mark chapter 8. We'll be reading from Mark chapter 8, and we'll be reading from 1 all the way to the end of uh, verse 21. So Mark 8, verse 1 to 21. Follow along with me in your copy of God's Word. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have, they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the crowd. And they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Thus far God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have not come here to learn from each other about you. But we've come here to learn from you about you. And Lord, I pray that you'd feed us right now. Feed us heavenly food. Feed us the word of Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to eat it, that we would receive it and be nourished by it. We pray that you'd create faith in us and that you would strengthen faith in us through the preaching of your word. And we pray that the purpose for which you spoke these things and did them would be accomplished in us today. I pray that you do this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the title of our sermon here is The Bread of Life versus Pharisee Yeast. The Bread of Life versus Pharisee Yeast. 
Now, as we say here in this service, we are very happy to see kids here because this is the place where kids belong. And of course, the longer you go to church, the older you get, the more you're going to understand. But that doesn't mean you will not understand the most important things. You can remember the most important things. You can remember what happened. These are true things that happened in the life of Jesus. Jesus was teaching people and they were with him for a few days and Jesus looked on them and he realized that they were very hungry and Jesus felt really sad for them that they were hungry. He loved them and he cared about them and so he instructed his disciples to feed them and again, they fed, he fed them in a very miraculous way. They only had seven loaves of bread and yet he fed 4,000 people with these seven loaves of bread and they had a few small fish and he fed them with those few small fish. And in fact, they took up more leftovers at the end than they began with. After this, the Pharisees came up to him and said, Jesus, we want you to do one of the miracles. We're going we're to pick a miracle that you're going to do for us. And you will do it to prove that you are the Messiah. And Jesus sighed and said, why, why are you asking me for more miracles? I'm not going to give you the miracles that you ask for. And then Jesus got in a boat with his disciples to go to the other side of the lake. And the disciples forgot to take enough food for all of them. And so they're arguing with each other. We only have one loaf of bread. What are we going to do? They're panicking. We only have one loaf of bread. Now, you know why this is silly. Jesus had just fed 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread. And so Jesus said, what do you not understand what is going on here? And then he warned the disciples, do not be like the Pharisees. And in fact, he used an illustration. He says, don't be like the leaven of the Pharisees. Leaven is like yeast or something that you put in bread so that it rises, it gets bigger and bigger and fluffier and fluffier. And it fills the whole lump of bread, the whole lump of dough. And he says, be careful. Because what's happening with the Pharisees, the reason they don't believe in me, that could happen to you too. So be careful that you don't do that. So here's some of the main points that you can remember. You can tell your parents this after the service. First thing we can see is that God cares about your heart, but he also cares about your, your body. You can ask God for things, not just for forgiving you. You can ask God to help you to, to, to obey him and ask God to help you trust him. But you know, you can also ask for him for, for other things. Things like food. And safety. You can ask him to help you at school or help you do things. The other thing that this proves is that God did prove that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the rescuer from the Old Testament. God proved this. He proved that Jesus was the one that he promised in the Old Testament. The other thing that is very clear in this passage is the Pharisees didn't want to believe. And they were lying when they said, if you just would do one more miracle, we'd, we'd trust you. They didn't want to believe. They were lying when they said that they just needed more proof. They just didn't want Jesus. And the other thing, the last thing is that when we hear about Jesus in the Bible, or when our parents tell us this, or maybe our grandparents tell us this, we have to trust in him. Because there's no other one who will rescue us. We can't save ourselves. Jesus is the only one that God sent to rescue us. So those are the main things, and you can remember that even if you're a child. I have a question here to start us off, though. 
Is skepticism a good thing or a bad thing? Is skepticism a good thing or a bad thing? When somebody says, I'm a skeptic, is that a good thing or a bad thing? And the Bible is going to answer that question in two ways, actually. Because there's actually two different kinds of skepticism, you could say. There is a godly skepticism where God would say, that's good that you don't trust everything you you hear. (laughs) It's actually good that you don't trust everything that you hear about God. You shouldn't. But there's also a hypocritical skepticism. There's a hypocritical skepticism in this passage. These events, first of all, God made sure these events would happen to show the difference between those two kind of skepticisms. A godly one that doesn't believe everything that people say about God, and also a hypocritical one, a pretend one, one that's looking like a godly one but really isn't. The first point is this. The Lord is the giver of all good gifts to all nations. The Lord is the giver of all good gifts to all the nations. Did you notice the location of where this happened? Where are we now in the story? We've been following Jesus in his journeys. Where are we? Are we in Israel or are we outside of Israel? Where are we? We're outside of Israel right now. Jesus is not in the land of Israel. Also notice that this is the second time Jesus fed a few thousand people with just a little bit of food. The first time he fed 5,000 families. This time he, he, he feeds 4,000 people. The first time he fed a massive amount of people with a little bit of food was actually in Israel. There's a big difference here. So the first time he does it, he does it in Israel. The second time he does it to the people who are not part of Israel. He's in Gentile territory. There's another difference between this time and the last time Jesus did this. The first time Jesus feeds a massive amount of people, the the feeding of the 5,000. If you remember this, you can flip there if you want. But the first time he does it, it says that Jesus looked on the crowd and had compassion on them. Remember that? Where Jesus sees this massive amount of people and he has great compassion. But he doesn't feed them right away. His compassion for the people was because they were sheep without a shepherd. His compassion for the people wasn't that they didn't have food. His compassion for the people in that miracle was that they didn't have the gospel. They didn't have someone who would honestly tell them where they were at with God and what could be done. And so he has compassion and he sits them down and he shares the gospel with them. He teaches them. He teaches them with the words of God. That's the first time. Is that the same here? It's actually not. Here, Jesus is teaching the people. He's teaching them for a few days. And his compassion isn't based on the fact that they don't have the gospel. Because he's just giving them lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of gospel. And then he looks on them and he has compassion. What's his compassion this time? His compassion is that they don't have bread. They don't have daily bread, you could say. In the Lord's Prayer, God encourages us to pray for many things. He tells us that we are to pray for forgiving our sins. He actually tells us, pray that, we, pray that we would not be led into temptation. God wants us to pray for those spiritual things. Pray for that God's kingdom would come, that God's will would be done, that it would be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
But one of the sweet parts of the Lord's Prayer is he says, he tells us, here's how I want you to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. It is a heartless thing, the teaching that God cares only about your soul, that he doesn't care about your body. It is heartless to think that God says, I don't really care what happens to you so long as when you die, you get to heaven. That is not the God of the Bible. That's a God that somebody made up. It's not true. The God of the Bible certainly cares about your soul. And he has definitely come to, he sent Jesus to redeem your soul. But the God of the Bible also cares about your body. And in this case, we see Jesus' compassion is not just for their souls. Jesus cares about your bodily needs as well. And so included in the phrase, our daily bread, would certainly be bread. Some gluten-free version of it, if you are gluten-free. Or meat. It also would include things like health, clothing, a home to live in, shelter from the wind and the cold and the, and the weather. Daily bread would include other things like friends or a job or family. These things that you could technically, you could go to heaven without these things. They are temporary things. They are things that will not last forever. The bread he gives you today won't last till tomorrow. Your family members eventually will die. The home you live in will eventually rot. It will age. But God still cares about these needs. God has compassion on all the world. Remember here, we are in Gentile territory. This is not the nation that the church is located. Of course, now we are in the New Testament, New Covenant, and so the church is of all nations, but the church was essentially limited to one nation. And what God is demonstrating here is that God is the God of all nations. Now, that doesn't mean that he is, he's all the nation's gods, he is Zeus and he is all these things. No, he's the God of Israel, but the God of Israel, as we saw last week and the week before, is the God who made all the other nations and who has been caring for them. Because people who do not love God eat. They have homes. The farmers farm and they farm successfully. God has proven that the God of Israel is the one who made the earth and who sustains it. God has demonstrated to all people that there is a God and he's the one from whom all your food comes. Brother Kevin read for us Psalm 104, and I wondered if you noticed the pattern in Psalm 104. Did you notice that it lists all the ways that creation depends on God? One of my favorite lines from Psalm 104 is it talks about the young lions. Think of Simba. The young lions, they roar for their prey. And then it says, by the way, who are they seeking their food from? It says they're seeking their food from God. Every part of creation depends on God. The lions do. It says the mountain goats do. Even the rock badgers seek their food from God. The herons. All of creation is sustained and taken care of by God. And then he even says in Psalm 104, and the people, they work for their food. 
And here's the question. Everyone gets their food from God. And everybody really does know that my food does come from God. There is a God. And the question is, are you somebody who will worship the God who has given you that food? Or are you somebody who God gives food to you even though you're not worshiping him? See, the God of Israel is the God who fed Israel in the wilderness. Remember the stories of the Old Testament? God fed his people miraculously in the wilderness. But that God was also the God who was taking care of the Babylonians and the Egyptians, those gods, those people who hated him and worshipped false gods. The Lord is the giver of all good gifts to all nations. And so Jesus has compassion on all these people. There's some Jews there. There's some Gentiles there. He has compassion on them and he feeds them and he feeds them miraculously. And he feeds them with just a few loaves of bread and some little fish. Actually, the word for fish here is different than in the 5,000. Those fish were big fish. These ones are like sardines. Little fish, it says, right? And afterward, they take up more food than they had begun with. Jesus demonstrated that he is the God of the Old Testament, but he's also the God who created the heavens and the earth and takes care of all the people. But now I want you to notice that after this incredible miracle, the Pharisees come to him. Let's read that, verse 11, Mark 8, 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. So the Pharisees, after this miracle, said, we, we want you to do for us a sign. So they were going to pick a miracle for God, for Jesus to do, and said, you, you must do this because you have to prove that you're the Messiah. And our point is this. God testified to the identity of Jesus as the Christ. God testified to the identity of Jesus as the Christ. The Pharisees demand a sign from Jesus. And Jesus' response is, no sign will be given to this generation. No sign. I'm not going to give you one. Now, when you're interpreting the Bible, when you're reading the Bible, context is Context is king. <laughs> so you have to think, okay, he could not have said, I'm not going to do any miracles because he had just done a miracle, right? So we know that's not what he meant. In fact, in the Old Testament, this is the scriptures that were delivered before Jesus, signs, miracles were required if you were saying, I'm a prophet. You actually had to prove that you were a prophet of God, and if you couldn't, the punishment was capital punishment. You can't say, hey, believe this about God. If it's not in the Bible, and if you can't prove that you speak from God, and you can actually prove this with miracles. So blind faith, blind faith is not required. God hates the idea of blind faith. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, no one could stand up and say, I want you to believe this law about God. God wants you to do this, and he'll be upset if you don't. And you could not say, God promised to do this, and you must believe God for that promise. You couldn't do that unless you could prove it. 
Some of you know what the phrase, the burden of proof means? The burden of proof was always on the prophet. The people were not supposed to say, well, I have to believe him unless I can prove he's wrong. No, 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 no. You're not allowed to believe that guy unless he can prove that he is a prophet. Blind faith isn't good. Every prophet of the Old Testament had to prove before they were accepted as a prophet, they had to prove they were. They had to prove using the characteristics that only God could do that God was the author of history. They should be able to tell history before it happens. They should be able to, they should be able to show that God controls nature because he is the one who controls nature by doing things that were impossible unless you could control nature. Real, true miracles. All of the Bible, before Christ and after, were attested by those things. God does not love blind faith. Now, what did Jesus mean then? I'm not going to do any miracles for you. What he was saying is, miracles would not be done on demand. Okay? We actually have, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, there was someone who said, I've got three miracles I'd like you to do for me, and if you don't, well, that would be shameful. Who was the name of that person who said, I want you to do three miracles, and you're going to do these things? What was that person's name? Satan. The temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Remember this? Here's three things I want you to do, Jesus. I want you to turn those stones into bread. See, Jesus was, was, uh, was dared by Satan to do miracles. And he said, here's the miracle I'd like you to do. And Jesus refused. Later, Jesus is going to say, he only does the miracles that God the Father told him to do. These miracles weren't because people were like, you're a miracle worker, do this for me. The people couldn't test Jesus with the miracle. The signs, the miracles were God's testimony about Jesus. Those miracles actually originate from God. The signs weren't tricks, but the signs, as we've been seeing, the signs identified him as the one the Old Testament promised. Jesus didn't just do random miracles. All the miracles that Jesus did pointed back to the Old Testament showing, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God of David. I'm the God of Elijah. He's proving that he fulfills all of the things that God had promised. Think about it this way. If you put together all the different miracles that Jesus did, it's kind of like God is painting a picture Kind of like a mosaic. You know what a mosaic is, right? Little pieces, and if you put them all together, it forms a picture that's bigger than all those pictures. And God is painting a picture, a mosaic, of the identity of Jesus by all the miracles that he gave him to do. So imagine you are an artist, and you're making, you're, you're making a mural, Okay? You're making a mural. Everybody get this? You're making a mural. It's some, for some of you, it's hard for you to imagine this because you're a terrible artist. I'm one of these people, so I'm with you with this illustration. But let's say you're hired to, you're a great artist, and you're hired to paint the side of a massive building. And if you're very, very close up, you can't really see the picture. You have to stand back, and you get to see all of it, okay? But you have an assignment. You didn't get to pick the art that you're doing. 
You were, you were assigned by this. Somebody's paying you a lot of money to do this, right? And they say, I want this miracle. Uh, miracle. I want this mural. Sorry, mixing metaphors. So you're painting this thing. And imagine somebody comes up to you and says, oh, you think you're a good artist, hey? You think you're a good artist? Here's how you can prove to me that you are a good artist. I want you right there on that, on that spot right there, and they point on the, on the wall. I want you to draw a picture of a Martian. That would prove to me that you are a good artist. I will stop heckling you if you could prove to me by drawing the thing I asked you to draw. Then, then I would say that you are a good artist. This is kind of what's happening with the Pharisees. They've seen miracle after miracle after miracle. They see Jesus fulfilling all the promises of the Old Testament. Every word that God spoken, the Bible says, finds its yes and amen in Jesus. We get to make no demands of God. We make no demands of God, but we also cannot claim that he has given us no reason to believe in him. God has given us many reasons to believe in his existence. He has created all things. Things exist. Everyone knows, even scientists know that things cannot exist by themselves. If something exists, somebody, something caused it to exist. If something happened, something must have caused that to happen. We know these things are true. We can make no demands of God saying, I, I will believe in you if you do this. Especially after God has already proven that he exists. So let's return to the story. Jesus has this interaction with the Pharisees. He's very disappointed with them. And you can tell he's even, he's even personally quite upset about this. And then they get on the boat. He gets on the boat with the disciples, right? He has his, his enemies are sort of doubting what he's doing and they're, they're being foolish and they're doubting. And then he gets on the boat with his friends, the 12 disciples. And the, the disciples forget to take enough bread. They take one loaf for the, for the 12 of them. We're not talking about a massive loaf here. We're talking about a loaf that would fit in your hands like this. And Jesus is saying to them, it is foolish. Do the math. If I fed that many people with this amount of bread, why are you worried now? Let's read this passage then. Let's start at verse 14. Verse 14 of Mark 8. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having ears, do you not see? And having, uh, having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? That's far God's word. Jesus tells the disciples that they are in danger of being just like the Pharisees. The fact that they're seeing him do these miracles and they're not getting it, they're very much in danger of being just like the Pharisees. 
And that takes us to our next point, which is to be skeptical of your own skepticism. Be skeptical of your own skepticism. And this is a loving warning to the church. Jesus has the little church gathered together, and he gives this warning to the church. So uh, Jesus gives the illustration. Of course, he's on the topic of bread. He said, the Pharisees leaven. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. He's saying, if you're not careful, you see how foolish the, the Pharisees are and how they're going to reject me. This could happen to you. This is something that could spread, and you're in danger of this as well. What was the leaven of the Pharisees? The leaven of the Pharisees, we read elsewhere in Scripture, was hypocrisy. The leaven of the Pharisees was hypocrisy. We know hypocrisy is acting one way, acting in a way that's dishonest. Acting one way and thinking uh, another way. Or saying something and acting differently than what you're saying. Hypocrisy is making pretend. You're pretending something's happening that's clearly not happening. This was the leaven of the Pharisees, and so too was Herod. Herod, of course, was the king over Israel, and he, he wasn't the legitimate king, but the Romans put him in place, and the agreement was, if you serve us, we'll let you pretend you're the king. And Herod loved that. And so Jesus here is talking about hypocritical skepticism. He wants us to consider whether our skepticism is actually hypocritical skepticism. What is hypocritical skepticism? That means not being honest in their critique. You know, I would believe, but isn't it more honorable to keep asking for more proof? But he gave them so much evidence. They're not being honest when they say, all, all I need is just a little bit more proof. And, and I would. Look, I, I'm, I want to believe in the Messiah, and I would. All he'd have to do is prove it to me. What was the thing that kept the Pharisees from believing in Jesus? Their hypocrisy wasn't keeping them from believing in Jesus. It, there was something else that was keeping them from believing in Jesus. The fact is they didn't want the Messiah. They didn't love God. They didn't fear God. They did not want the Messiah. They loved, it says in Luke 12 verse 1, it says that they loved the praise of men. At the end of the day, the Pharisees, if they had to pick between men loving them and God loving them, they would have picked men loving them. If they had to pick, at the end of the day, whether or not Caesar was going to be good to them or God was going to be good to them, they'd pick Caesar. At the end of the day, who were they more afraid of punishing or whose enemy would they rather be? They'd rather be God's enemy than Caesar's enemy. This is why they did not accept what Jesus taught. They didn't want what God was offering. God promised a Messiah. He promised a rescuer in the Old Testament. He was very clear about that rescuer. And then he was very clear that Jesus was that rescuer. But they didn't want that rescuer. They didn't want what God was offering. And it wasn't that Jesus didn't prove that he was the Messiah sent from God. They just didn't want the Messiah sent from God. So to use a silly illustration, it's kind of like a person who hates mashed potatoes. So imagine, it might be difficult, imagine you hate mashed potatoes. And somebody says to you, you know, let's say you're a child and somebody says, this is mashed potatoes and your mom says that you have to eat it. 
It's an illustration. And you don't want to eat these mashed potatoes. And so you're like, well, you, I, I don't believe it's mashed potatoes. I mean, if I believed it was mashed potatoes, I would definitely eat it. And then the person proves over and over and over and over and over again that this is mashed potatoes. And you'd be like, look, I would eat it. I really would. I love mashed potatoes. But you just have to prove to me that it is mashed potatoes. This is exactly what the Pharisees are doing. They don't want the Messiah that God had promised. They didn't want what God was offering. And so they kept saying, well, you know, I, I, I just, you haven't proven it yet. Another way to look at it is this. There's a different way of hearing things when you're a child. Let's say you're in a different floor of your house from your parents. And they call out something. You hear things differently. Imagine they call out something like, hey, clean your room. Or, hey, come upstairs, we're having ice cream. Which one do you think you'd be more likely to believe? Which is the one you'd be like, I I'm going to come because I I'm pretty sure I heard them. You might just ignore it, ignore it, ignore it until somebody absolutely proved it. Or maybe your sibling comes down, mom, mom says you have to clean your room. Well, I mean, you can't you have to prove it. I mean, I have no idea. If you, if she could, you could be lying. Mom maybe didn't say I have to clean my room. You never know. Or that per same sibling comes down and says, uh, mom says come upstairs because there's ice cream. You're running right away. I want, I, I believe it. This is the roadblock to the belief of the Pharisees. It wasn't lack of evidence. It was a heart that wanted other things. Your friends, the gospel is something that we don't naturally want. The gospel is forgiveness from sins. It absolutely is. The gospel is eternal life. It absolutely is. But it is eternal life as God's child. And the gospel is forgiveness of sins in such a way that you don't get to take any pride in it. You don't get to boast. The Pharisees would have loved a gospel that they could take credit for. A gospel that says, here's something that, that you can be saved, only the good people get saved. They would have loved that because then they could sort of look down at other people who weren't saved. Look, I'm better than you, that's why I get to go to heaven. And Jesus over and over again says, that's not the kind of salvation I'm offering. The kind of salvation I'm offering is that you realize that you are dead in your transgressions and sins and that you deserve the wrath of God and not one person can get to heaven by their own works, not even with help from God. And the Pharisees didn't want that. It was too humbling. And so the Pharisees rejected it. And so they kept saying the problem was a lack of evidence. And yet it wasn't that. It was a heart that wanted something other than God. Sometimes disbelieving in evidence can actually be wicked. Sometimes demanding more evidence can actually be wicked. Imagine that you are on a, journey, a jury. Lots of illustrations. You're now on a jury. And you have to make a decision, guilty or innocent, for a person. And imagine that the defendant's uh, lawyer has proven over and over and over and over and over and over again that the man who is accused of this crime is innocent. Imagine over and over and over again, the man who is accused of this is innocent. 
and you're sitting there in a jury and you keep saying, no, heaven proven it to me, and you're willing to condemn an innocent man because you know what, I'm just gonna keep asking for more and more evidence. Dear friends, if you were that juror, you would be sinning. You would be sinning by rejecting clear evidence and saying that man is guilty until he can prove to me even more and more and more. And this, and this is exactly what is going on in hearts that reject the Lord Jesus. God has proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is a God, that there is one God, that he created all things and that you owe him your obedience, that he is a good God who knows all things, that can do all things, and is everywhere. And he has given us his law. We know his law. We know that it is wicked to lie. We know that it is wicked to cheat on our spouses and to have sexual relationships outside of marriage. We know this. We know that it is sinful to steal. We know that it is sinful to kill. We know these things are true. And yet people say, you know, God would have to prove to me that there is a God. I'm going to be an agnostic until that point. Your friends, the roadblock is not a lack of evidence but that we don't want it to be true. We would prefer it's not true because if there was a God, if there was a God, that means we'd have to worship and obey him. And if there was a God, we'd know that we are guilty before that God because we have broken his laws. Now this is true for conversion, for coming to Christ, but it is also true for Christians. People who have already been converted we also struggle with this. This is why Jesus turns to the Pharisees says, or to the, the disciples, the church, and says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. We do this when we read scripture. Maybe scripture gives us a command. And the clear reading of scripture, you should not do this or you should do this. And we're like, you know what? I, someone's going to have to prove to me that, that that's what the Bible means because otherwise I'm just going to continue doing what the Bible clearly says not to until somebody can prove it to me. And in this case, we have to be careful that we don't trust our own thoughts more than we trust the Bible. We have to be skeptical of our own skepticism. Well, I'm, I'm pretty sure the Bible doesn't mean that. Why are you pretty sure the Bible doesn't mean that? Is it because it would be costly to obey God? Is it because you'd have to uh, repent publicly of something and admit that you're wrong? Are you afraid of suffering? Be skeptical of your own skepticism. And this is not just for non-Christians. This is also true for Christians. We have to do this not just with our own ideas, but the doctrines of men. This is one of the problems with the Pharisees, remember? Remember? They rejected Jesus because he didn't fulfill their doctrines that weren't found in the Bible. And they agreed they weren't found in the Bible. But we have to be skeptical of doctrines. And I know that that is pretty controversial. But dear friends, if you are on the internet and somebody says something about God, you should not believe it until they can prove it from the Bible. And they can prove that there's no way to disprove it from the Bible that they have used all of scripture to demonstrate that this is true, 
Not that they look at one paragraph of the Bible and, and say, this is what the Bible says. You are required to be skeptical of those doctrines. The Bible that does not permit us to believe whatever a man says until it's proven false by Scripture. It's the exact opposite. We must not believe anything about God until it is positively proven by Scripture. And the leaven of the Pharisees is at work in us. And the algorithms on the internet know this. They know those things that you don't want to believe. They followed your search history. They know those things that you would prefer to believe. And they will shove teachers at you that you will be inclined to be unskeptical of. Dear friends, let us be skeptical of our own skepticism. These things spread. Notice these things. Trust in what God has proven in Christ. That takes us to our last point. There is no other bread than Christ. There is no other bread than Christ. You can say, look, I don't have to make a decision about this. I, I'm, I'm undecided about Jesus. Because it isn't Christ or nothing. It's Christ or a false hope. You do have to choose. You do have to make up your mind, the Bible says. Make up your mind. John has an account of the 5,000 in his gospel. If you read in John chapter 6. Jesus explains the meaning of the, of, the past, of, of the miracle, and he says, I'm the bread of life. You have to eat me if you want to be saved. You have to eat me if you, need, if you want to be saved. That doesn't mean you just imitate me or you obey me or I can show you how to be saved. I need to be the one who saves you, and you need to believe in me in the same way that you eat bread. You don't imitate bread in order to get life from bread. The bread is the life. And remember what happened when Jesus explained the meaning of the feeding of the 5,000? There was a huge crowd there, and what happened? After he explained the meaning, how many people were left beside him? Twelve. Everybody left. Everybody left. And Jesus says to the disciples, he says to them, do you also want to leave? And you remember what their, their answer was? Where else would we go? Dear friends, there is no alternative. You can't just say, I'll make no decision up. You need to come to a conclusion. And it will not do to say that there is no God. That will not work. And you know in your spirit that that is not true. You know you cannot conclude there is no God. Because you exist. And you believe in right and wrong. And you believe that things exist. And you know they can't exist on their own. The other thing that will not work is to tell yourself that you do not need a savior because deep in your heart you know that you are guilty. You know that you're not different from other people. You know that you've also broken God's laws and that you are guilty. And you know that there's no way that even if God gave you a way to save yourself, you wouldn't be able to do it. You know this is true. And you cannot say there is no God who has promised a savior. Because there is a God, and he has promised a Savior, and you have heard of him. And his salvation is not like the salvation that the other religions offer, dear friends. It is not 
imitate me and you will be saved. It is not be part of the right race and you will be saved. It is not work off your sins and be saved. And it is not, hey, everyone's saved, there's no need to be saved. It is I will do it instead of you. That God took on flesh. He took on humanity. He took on a human nature to himself. And he did all the things that you were supposed to do and have failed to do. And then he died for crimes he did not commit, but for ones that you committed. And that he proved that he was the author of life, the innocent one, by being raised from the dead on the third day. And God's promise has gone now into all the world. It's reached Canada. It's reached Manitoba. It has reached this building that you are in. The promise is that if you turn from your sins, whatever Christ accomplished will be yours if you trust in him. You've heard that. There is no other offer coming. There is no other bread offered from heaven. Not even other religions are even offering that. The Lord Jesus is the only one who is attested, born witness from God from heaven through his miracles, through his fulfillment of the Old Testament, through the eyewitnesses, through his death, and through his resurrection from the dead. You need a redeemer that brings salvation that he accomplished in his body and then gives it to you. Dear friends, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, the bread of life, the bread from heaven. I want to conclude the following thoughts. The simplest way to understand, to look at this passage, the simplest way to look at the feeding of the 4,000, and it is true, is to see that God cares also about your daily bread. Do not forget that, dear Christians. And if you are a non-Christian, you should remember that too. Because even though you don't know God, he has been caring for your needs. Which is evidence that you will not be able to deny when you stand before him. There is a God who took care of me. And I hated him. And I denied him. But the simplest is to understand that God cares about daily bread as well. The second thing is that we are to humble ourselves before the word of God. Not Not to demand Uh, an unending list of signs and wonders, proofs that God exists. Dear friends, we know that God exists. You do. Whether you're a Christian or not, you know that God exists. But we are to humble ourselves and receive the Savior, not the one that we wanted, but the one that God gave. And the Lord showed that Christ was the bread of life. If you read the Gospels, you will see this very clear that he was the one, maybe not whom the Pharisees wanted him to send, maybe not the one that you would want him to send, but he was the one that God promised to send in the Old Testament, the one who would pay for the sins of his people and save them in such a way that they would have no boast, save them in such a way that if they were saved, they would say, yet not I, but to Christ and only through Christ in me. Your friends, you need salvation and you need it in the form of bread. 
not by imitating someone, but by getting their life. And this is Christ. The question is, do you want it? Or do you want to remain a free agent? Do you want God as your father? Or do you want to remain living disobediently and being your own God? Maybe you do want to be saved, but you'd, you'd want it in such a way that it would be something you could boast in. Something you could point to people who are unsaved and look, that's because I'm better than them. Or would you take the salvation that is actually offered? When where Christ comes and he gives you rest. Where he takes salvation on his own shoulders. His body broken as a piece of bread and then offered to all who will believe. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess that we have the same impulse in us as did the Pharisees and, and Herod, where we are very uninclined to believe what you say or to hear what you say because we'd prefer other things and yet we would blame it on the fact that you hadn't said it clear enough. Lord, I confess that is my own sin and Lord, that sin is in each of us and we pray that you'd forgive us for that. We also pray that you would overcome that. Lord, would you give us eyes to see, as Jesus said, and ears to hear, so that we would not deceive ourselves. And that whenever you speak a word of promise in your word, we would trust it. Whenever you speak a word of command, that we would accept that. Lord, I pray that you would give faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the bread of life. And I pray that you would do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, would you stand with us and respond to God's word by singing together?